Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of The Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by the recently appointed new Director of High Performance and Sports Medicine at Orlando City, David Cosgrove. David, welcome to the show. Hannah, thanks for the invite. Been looking forward to this for a long time. David, I would say how are you settling into Orlando, but we both know you're just recently off the plane. I suppose what were a set of circumstances that led to such a monumental move out to the States? Uh, it's uh, it's been a whirlwind, really, Connor. Um, you know, I've been on gardening leave for uh, the last year after FC Copenhagen, uh, seven years. Um, we finished up there, and I was finishing off my masters in sports directorship, uh, getting my dissertation done, and that's been wonderful. Um, I had uh, a little bit of a hiatus where I was working uh, with the people at Right to Dream, helping build out. Um, a purpose project um, as part of my master's uh, dissertation. That was really, really interesting to work with such um, intentionally purposeful people um, and marrying that up with the sports directorship. And then uh, last minute, Orlando came into play and there was a role here. Um, and before you know it, uh, the house was sold in Copenhagen and I'm sitting in Florida and my family's joining me in four weeks. Another chapter in the big book of the leadership bunker. But um, I suppose, you know, if you look, reflect back on your career, David, almost 20 plus years in the football industry. I mean, if we're going to take it back to day dot, was it always a goal or an intention of yourself to be and arrive in the football industry? Yeah, I, I think I've talked about this before. It was never, never on the cards because when I left university, um, you know, it was... Uh, try and become competent in my skill set um, and I left university from the Anglo-European College of Chiropractic in Bournemouth and as you can imagine there's probably no pathway from chiropractic college into professional sport it's probably impossible there was Jean-Pierre Mersman who's the famous Belgian chiropractor who was in Milan who helped set up the Milan lab but that was it uh, chiropractors were probably you know there was no place for them in uh, the multidisciplinary team so it's never on my mind so I went back to um, Cork and learned uh, some of the basic skills around uh, being a chiropractic graduate. Uh, and then uh, just found myself in London. And um, by coincidence, you know, I was really interested in biomechanics, how the foot was working, really interested in how the pelvis was working. I'd spent some time learning uh, the Milan way and then it all came together and I uh, got a, a, some presentations inside. Uh, let's see, where did I end up? Uh, at the FA. I gave some presentations on the foot, on the pelvis, and met a few different head physios and got some opportunities to go and present and see some patients in Spurs, Liverpool, uh, Bolton. And that was great. So, you know, I got to develop my competency with some really great head physios who gave me some tasks to work on. And those tasks gave me some confidence. You build out your model, what works, what doesn't work ascending and descending issues from the pelvis or the foot. And then before you know it, you have a little niche. Uh, so then um, I built that out and that um, specialism uh, became generalism because I had to learn how the other side of sports medicine worked. And now I've niched down into probably leadership again. So that's it's quite a, a crazy journey over 20 years, leaving a chiropractic college to uh, leading a department in the MLS now. Great story. And that's why you're here nonetheless. Um, I suppose, as you mentioned earlier on, having that hiatus out of the game, David, was there any of those clubs perhaps that you worked at, the likes of your Tottenham's, Liverpool's, Bolton's, that you actually reflect back upon now in hindsight and go like, wow, what these guys 
we're doing at the time, we're actually way ahead of the curve. Well, I think everybody knows the story of how Bolton might be the pioneers of sports science and how, you know, the sports psychology part uh, and the sports science part all grew out of the Bolton model. Uh, the innovative recruitment that they did and how Sam Allardyce and some of the guys attracted players to the club um, how so many leaders grew out of that um, sports science physical performance model. Uh, there's guys at Man City and guys in uh, New York and guys all over the world who have set up departments and built intern programs and mentored people to set up great departments. So Bolton gets a lot of credit for, um, you know, as you can imagine, uh, one of the guys who was on my course, uh, uh, the sports directorship course was uh, Rob Price, who went from England to Liverpool to uh, now he built out this unbelievable model uh, to support Bielsa at Leeds. So Rob, you know, is also somebody who's very pioneering, who his uh, footsteps were there before me. And, you know, it's really, really amazing that some of the guys I worked with do amazing things still, but they grew whole generations of next generation um, uh, practitioners and who've gone on to be leaders and set up their own departments so uh, those two guys uh, really really stand out uh, mark taylor was in bolton rob price uh, liverpool and um, now leeds but then there's this really really strong generation from fulham where it was all about service excellence and about making sure that all the team felt uh, open and included so there was um, you're a guardian and a custodian of the past just kind of like the All Blacks are, but your job is to provide service excellence. And to do that, you need to make sure that everybody in the team feels like they're part of it. So, you know, you're open and inclusive. So all of those things together made uh, Fulham a pioneering group. Um, and I'll never forget uh, that time in uh, Fulham. And I learned a lot. And it comes back to the fact that they were owned by Harrods. And Harrods and the HR guys from Harrods, they came in and they... Um, created a model where you know the HR employee life cycle was very important for everybody within the business and they were trendsetters that was 15 years ago maybe even 20 years ago they were looking at the HR part of being a member of a team and being like a custodian of the past of the club but also pioneering things for the future but everybody had a voice so we talk about psychological safety these days but Fulham were doing that 20 years ago with the open and inclusive values of making sure that everybody felt part of a team. So um, those uh, lessons have come with me a long time, but uh, I'm grateful for all those people for imparting some knowledge. And now that's my job, to impart some knowledge when I come over to the States. So it's really, really exciting. Something there about standing on the shoulders of giants. However, just touching base with Fulham, I suppose that method of empowering players, empowering stakeholders. With football being as transient as ever nowadays, do you think possibly that there is a cohort of clubs you could only adapt that approach to? I'm talking about the likes of your Man United, the likes of your Man Cities, where basically football is not even at the forefront anymore when you look at commercial obligations and whatnot, David. And it's so interesting because, yeah, like football, sport as a service, football as a service, you know, it, Football is now the tenant where you can monetize something. Um, and I suppose, you know, you can't rely on uh, the, just the fans coming to the stadium and the fans buying a shirt anymore. So you basically have to build out some financial model. 
And one of the interesting things I learned recently is that people are really, really interested in a purposeful community football club. So look at Forest Green Rovers and look at uh, FC Norshall and Write the Dream model. People are now interested in the fact that a club, a football club, has told the world that it's purposeful. Look at Patagonia. People are interested in buying Patagonia as a brand because they're basically giving back all the profits and buying back uh, mountain ranges and rainforests. So, you know, clubs now are not just selling football or not just selling tickets. They're selling something bigger. And that could be an experience. So you go to Man United for an experience. But you go to Forest Green maybe because they've decided that they're going to be, you know, a renewable, sustainable green club. Maybe they become your second team. Or maybe FC Norsell and Right to Dream becomes more interesting because you can see that this is a well thought out plan where we're giving opportunities to people who haven't been given opportunities before. So they're trying to level the playing field of opportunity globally. So why not support them? Because they seem to be intentionally purposeful. So you know, I think um, football is the, gets you in uh, the door, gets you on your seat, but doesn't make you come back. So all clubs are looking at a reason for why should people come back because the days of just going for the football game, they might be changing as everybody tries to find a competitive advantage of why people want to be associated with them. As you said before in one of the sessions on the leadership bunker, which I will attach in the show notes below, and I would implore everybody to go take a look at it. You said before, remember, purposeful work won't find you. You have to go looking for it yourself. And I suppose taking that hiatus out of the game, if we are going to reflect on that period now, David, I mean, a great period for yourself in terms of learning, in terms of unlearning. I mean, having been involved in a game, you know, nonstop, season in, season out for 29 years, what was it like just being able to turn off those energy receptors and, if you will, start from scratch again? Yeah, it's a really interesting question, Colin, because people always say, do you lose your identity when you lose your job? You know, that's one of the things like does the badge mean so much to you that actually the badge is you so when you lose your job at a football club or in anything you probably have to question yourself like who am i and how much does the badge mean to me and how much of that identity is mine so i went through you know the first month trying to ask those questions like is am i wrapped up in this badge or is there more and because i had done a little bit of work personally on myself and understanding who i was I've been able to distance myself from the role and from um, the status of the job and from the badge. So in effect, when you took off the shirt, you had another shirt underneath and that was uh, education. And if you took off that shirt, then you were you now try and be a good person. And if you took off that shirt, it was, you know, try and be someone who's curious, inquisitive in life. So all the different shirts that you were taking off allowed you to think, okay, well, this hiatus is rewarding instead of, now I've been forced into taking off the shirt to see who I am underneath it. So I use that time valuably, uh, valuably to understand all the different shirts I could wear and who I could be as a partner, as a father, but also as a, a mentor to other people. Uh, I was a student of the game and a student of life. So when I was going through my master's of sports directorship, I was always asking myself humbly, do I you know, know enough about these things? Can I learn more? And um, you go through the imposter and the imposter syndrome, like, am I going to be able to be um, someone who can people can look up to when I have this uh, directorship roles in the future? So I use that hiatus for a lot of 
self-discovery and it was rewarding because you know there was different people underneath the badge uh, and I was happy and I felt secure in my own identity because of that. One of the greatest paradoxes I've come to know now in football is obviously you spoke a lot about there about perhaps your value structure may have changed from taking that time out of the game. It would be unfair to say perhaps you were afforded the luxury of after 20 years having that time to get clear in your value structure and whatnot. But as you can see, young practitioners come to the game nowadays, David. I mean, you look at the supply compared to the demand of jobs and they can be forgiven, couldn't they, I suppose, for sacrificing their values in the short term just to get a kickstart ahead. Yeah, totally. You know, we often talk about if you don't do the work beforehand, if you don't do the emotional work or the spiritual work or the self-reflection work, if you don't do that, well, then basically, you know, you're just a passenger on the journey. So if you take the time out to reflect and understand who you are, understand, uh, you know, your competencies, understand your value structure and what is important to you, then, you know, this purpose, mission, values thing can be really, really, um, really, really complicated. So, the, you know, the values are the things that you really care about that you're not going to bend on. The mission is, you know, what am I doing on a daily basis, but whom am I going to do it with? So if you're doing that, then you understand your mission because I will choose to work with a mentor, mentor because I know he, he will take me on a journey. And then the big, the big thing, the purpose, why am I here? We talked about it recently. And don't worry about why you're here. The purpose will find you if you know what your values are. If you're doing purposeful work as part of your daily mission, guess what? The purpose will come and find you because you know it will become... The universe finds people who are on these journeys. Now, if you didn't do your work, you might just get stuck inside a department doing tasks that you don't love, you know, wondering why I don't get the opportunity to go somewhere else, because you're converging in on why am I not pr uh, progressing in life instead of there are so many opportunities open to me and diverging and saying the universe will bring it to me because I'm a purposeful individual, not what is my purpose or why am I here? So often people get confused about that. And uh, the John Demartini values determination exercise, which everybody can check online if they haven't done it, this allows you to check in with yourself sometimes to find out what are my top five values. For some people, it might be family. So if family is their top value, but they have to work 60 hours a week at a football club in a support role, well, there's massive conflict there. So how can your family be number one if the demands of the job are 60 hours and you're fighting to get into a more senior role? So of course you're going to burn out if you don't understand that there is a massive conflict because you haven't done the work to understand. So um, if any young practitioner is listening to that, do the work first, understand what your higher values are, make the sacrifices or make uh, the path more easier to follow and then follow it. And then hopefully you'll understand the mission and then the purposeful stuff will find you later on. In terms of purposeful and value-driven work, you seem to have served what was a five, nine on six-year apprenticeship at AFC Copenhagen, probably the biggest club in Denmark, David. Every time I've spoken to yourself or heard you on the bunker, it's amazing really to hear the amount of good things you have to say about that, not only city, the club, the country itself. I mean, getting out of the English football bubble and adapting to that whole new work environment in Scandinavia. Could you enlighten us? 
Yeah, look, if you don't understand otherness, if you don't understand other people and how they see a problem, then all you have is your own reality. And if you don't check your own reality, then, you know, you believe everything that you know is right and that it's gospel. So when you go into another culture and you go into another world and you start opening up to how they see things or how they do things, well, then basically you become more curious, but humbly curious. And then you start accepting their otherness as like, well, maybe this might be the right way to do something. And we, I've talked about it before in Rob Pacey's podcast, the way they look at family and the way they look at weekends off and the way they look at work finishes at whatever time the task is finished, meaning that I can spend more time at family. You get a better work-life blend because of that, because you're not going to burn out because you're not worried about the tasks and your boss isn't going to kill you if you go home at two o'clock. And to a European, um, you know, that might feel normal. To a Anglo-American Aussie, that might feel crazy. What, you mean you don't do 12 hours a day? Uh, you, you mean you go home at two o'clock? And here's one of the things that cracked me up at the start. Some guys didn't even come to games. And I was like, you don't want to go to a game? Oh, no, no, I'm going away to my, with my family to the summer house. And I was like, oh, this is just crazy. But to them, that was totally normal. So getting out of the English uh, professional sport bubble and moving into Scandinavia uh, allowed me to realize that the otherness, the way other people look at life was, you know, probably a more balanced way than the model I'd grown up in. So burnout is something I care deeply about. And in America, um, uh, they like to work the long hours and they like to put in the shift. They only get 14 days holiday a year. So completely different. In, I think in Denmark, we had 37 holidays plus a load of bank holidays. So if you can imagine the culture shock for them in the first week when I'm talking to them about, you know, there is a chance that you could book this weekend off and you could change your schedule so you could spend time with your family. These guys are like, really? Is, is that possible? And I'm saying, of course it's possible. You know, you're doing all of your hours during the week, but the schedule is flexible for you if you don't want to travel to a game or if you want to go to dance class with your daughter. Oh, well, okay, that's interesting. That's really, really interesting. So um, my experience now of this otherness in Scandinavia, I can now impart that knowledge um, as long as the HR departments don't mind in Orlando, uh, that we're going to be flexible in some of our schedules. So it's been really rewarding and it's allowed me to stretch as a human past what I saw as my upbringing in Ireland and what I experienced in uh, British sporting culture. And talking about Orlando, that's a funny enough one now, because when we traditionally look at football, we consider it a zero-sum game. I mean, how do you sell that stuff to a club? I mean, in terms of looking past the low the low hanging fruits. Um, so look, we are we have an amazing story here at the moment because we have a new set of owners who come in from Minnesota Vikings, and they have decided to you know support all the great people that are already within the organization, see if they can promote from within, and see if they can add layers of leadership where there may have been gaps in the past. So they want this organization to grow and they have a saying that they want best practice and they want to be competitive. What that really means is that the owners want to win the MLS and they want to put great people in the important seats and then let the other people grow who haven't been given that opportunity before. So bringing my mindset from, you know, that we must win games in the Premier League to survive and in FCK, we must win 
for championship every year and we must get into Europe. So bringing the history of understanding how to win, but also this uh, human touch of we have to grow our people, you know, that's really, really important to our leadership that we can do both things because it's not just about winning games. Uh, it's about growing people and giving them an opportunity. And our head coach and our general manager are really, really connected to the local community and they want to give them something that brings joy, but also allows them to understand that there's a passion in the local community, which is very, very uh, multicultural and that they become part of that journey as well. So there is actually a really great connection between ownership, leadership, community and staff. Um, and that's really, really interesting for me to see when I arrived and when I was doing the interview process. It's very rare to have that dynamic leadership positions now, David, where you have an equal abundance of competency and emotional intelligence. And in fact, I mean, what I'm starting to notice a lot nowadays, obviously being involved in the game for the past few years, is that there's a lot of people that get in through nepotism or through doing the bare minimum possible. But on the flip side, I'm starting to see a lot of people that are equally as competent at their job but get punished for it. Last week, we've just seen Borussia Mönchengladbach, Max Erbel, sporting director of 15, 16 years, Site Burnout was a key factor as to his sudden resignation. We've seen sporting directors such as Ralph Ragnick in the past. We've seen uh, the former Italian manager last season, Prandelli, retire from the sport. I mean, Burnout being, I suppose, an avid interest of yourself. I mean, what can clubs like Orlando be doing to kind of save-proof their leaders, save-proof their coaches, save-proof their staff and players from this in the future? It's really, really interesting because burnout is so important. So the first, the first the important thing is that can we all have conversations? Uh, can we take off the mask of toxic masculinity? Can we stop talking about, you know, banter? Can we stop putting each other under pressure? Can we start behaving vulnerably around each other? Can we put our hand up and say it's all too much and that can we have a break? You know, these are all the really important conversations that males in sport have to have with each other. Um, at this time, because the, the doors have been open. It's now okay to talk about mental health. It's now okay to say it's not okay. But what we have to do is we have to be brave enough to take off the mask and we have to say that I actually am vulnerable too, or I am feeling the pressure of it as well. So to do that, we need amazing role models in leadership positions. So we need managers, like Steve Bruce saying the amount of abuse he got when he was at Newcastle, makes him reconsider being a head coach. That's a role modeling, that's effective role modeling that will allow younger coaches to say, yeah, abuse is not on, or maybe I can call abuse out. Then you've got guys like Cody Royal who are supporting coaches who will be able to point out to coaches saying, look, this isn't acceptable, this isn't enough. And if you want to, you could call this out. But at the same time, if you're burning out, we need to share the load and talk about it. So then you have Owen Eastwood, you know, doing great work around culture. And then you have Cody doing great work with coaches. So we have all of these different male uh, figures who are role models and ambassadors talking about uh, uh, the new generation of men being able to talk about their feelings. So there's so much work to do, but there's so much good work being done that it takes the next generation to say, well, actually, no, I'm not going to be able to work 60 hours um, this week, or I have to tell you my line manager that I'm burnt out and you need to change the way my tasks are being allocated to me. So as those, uh, those generation of guys 
become inspired by the leaders above them who are role modeling these behaviors, then it becomes you know, something within an organization that this type of dialogue is normal. So we have to normalize the fact that we're allowed to say I'm burnt out. We have to normalize the fact to say that I am feeling um, overworked or um, under-rewarded. Um, and then the employee life cycle has to protect people. And if you can protect people and you can make sure that there's buffers. Um, we talked recently about a concept called mental health first aiders. And this is if your HR department or your leadership, leadership group really um, care about you, Inside the group, there will be some informal mental health first aiders, people who can flag that there is a teammate that has gone quiet, there's a staff member that is stepping into conflict, uh, maybe there's a guy that hasn't showed up for work a few times, so we need to check it in on them. And that mental health first aider is really triaging, or tri uh, triaging uh, um, the fact that there is somebody that's, that's not okay. So you have to check in on them. And then that's when leadership step in and say, let's just check in on a player A or staff member B. So um, you know, effective role modeling Connor, will really make a difference here from leadership. So everybody else beneath can have those safe conversations. I suppose there's many ways too to skin a calf. Um, the first time I came across effective ways of dealing with this, in fact, was back in Iceland in 2019 when I was there researching for my thesis and it's something I brought up in a podcast last week with Brian Walsh of New York City FC who's doing fantastic work up there with their youth programs and it's looking past players not only coming into an academy and staying in the academy it's actually fine if you don't make it in the academy because guess what you're going to remain part of our community you can help out in flag day you can become a coach you can still come around and work in a club you can come here and support your friends will keep you around because you're a valued part of our community. However, it's creating a safe space for that. And when you see so many young coaches, so many gifted, but young and immature players trying to climb through the ranks, trying to climb, to climb those ladders, I, gen I genuinely think, David, it's going to be a generational problem. And I think it's something which the generation we're teaching now will hopefully implement. Yeah, and the conversation at the moment around Crystal Palace talking about the three-year offboarding, you know, that's very, very important because now other clubs can say, well, okay, we're doing something similar to Crystal Palace. We care about our community. We keep people connected to the club. We give opportunities. So now that uh, the media have jumped on the fact that Crystal Palace have got this very public um, uh, new program, other clubs can talk about it. Uh, Write a Dream, who I spent six months doing the project with, they have their character program. So what they're hoping is that um, they can develop great young people uh, who uh, have got great character, who become ambassadors for the next generation of Write to Dreamers. And if they make it as a footballer, that's a bonus. But they've made it as, um, you know, a great human. But they're representing their communities as well. So now they're becoming ambassadors and pioneers for the other boys and girls that can't even get into the academy at uh, Write to Dream or FC Norseland, or they have a new expansion in um, Egypt. So the fact that they've invested in a character program, other clubs have taken notice of this. So now other clubs are building character programs to make sure that um, all the boys and girls um, are great humans as well. 
you know, imagine also you didn't make it as a, a footballer. Why not go into STEM and why not go into school? Why not go into university? Why not get the pathway for a scholarship? Clubs are starting to do this as well, but right to dream were first. So, you know, there's loads of really, really effective um, role models out there for uh, clubs to allow their players to stay attached to them, to teach them the skills and the life skills that they need to go into um, a dual career, to become a student athlete, to get a scholarship. There's some great work being done by the FA and by the PFA to make sure that all the guys that come out of the old YTS or the EPPP, they also have an opportunity to go to college, to go to university. So there's so much work being done around dual careers and transitioning out of the game that probably the big buzzword in the next five years will be, are you a dual career athlete or how was your transition after you left the game? Were you planned and prepared to step into a life after football? Did you secure your identity and your dual identity? Because you're not just an athlete, you're a person, you're a, you're a son, you're a daughter or you might have a transferable skill set that allows you to walk straight into finance or like Gareth Farrelly did, walk into law and you do the hard work. So now Gareth is a role model for players that finish so they can become lawyers. But why not do what um, David Gill's son did? He gave up football and went and became a lawyer instead. Like that's a huge, huge, huge move to say, I'm not going to play for Man United. I'm going to become a lawyer instead. So, you know, there has been work done on transitions and dual careers, but now I think... Crystal Palace's program will say this three-year post support. Uh, well, you know, now other clubs can look at that and say, okay, we have a, you know, we have someone to look up to. But Right to Dream, I think, might have wrote this model. And if you're not, if everybody isn't sure about what Right to Dream has done, they should just check out all the work they've done on character education. So interesting. It's funny enough because it's something which has impacted us positively, really, back at home, especially in the League of Ireland. We look at a positive kind of in consequence of basically the oversupply and overpopulation of academy players in English systems. We've seen these players traditionally at home, instead of leaving home at 14, 15, they stay on, play their League of Ireland 17s, 19s, get their college education, play a few years League of Ireland, then make the move to the lower leagues in England, or then make the move to Europe. And it turns out just as well. But then, as we, I suppose, David, as we shift gradually now from more of a football business to a people business, I mean, what are the key traits and characteristics required of a leader now in this part of the 21st century? Yeah, so we talked about doing the work. If you haven't done the work and you don't know who you are yourself, well, then, you know, it's going to be very difficult for other people to follow you because, you know, every leader has a leader. So we all have to decide who we're willing to follow. And what we want to do is we always want to follow someone that we probably believe in or we trust. Maybe they have got something that we see in them and that we see in ourselves. So if you haven't done the work, then you don't know what you're looking for. So how can you be an effective follower? Because you have to be a follower before you can lead because you're always leading someone else. You're leading someone at home or you're being led by someone at home. You're being led at work or you're leading everybody at work. So that level of uh, self-awareness comes with, you know, doing deep, deep, deep reflection, finding a few mental models that work for yourself. So, you know, the what, so what, now what model really, really helps doing reflection. So you understand what's happening around you. I love to do a thing called sense making. So sense making is where you try and join all the dots and go backwards. So I've got a very logical head and I like to try and figure out why did that happen? 
So if you have a mental model that allows you to figure out why things happened, you can piece everything together and you get a better understanding of what's going to happen next, or you hope you do. But then you've got all these confirmation biases that make you think you've got the right answer. So you have to be humbly curious and make sure that you don't jump to conclusions because the worst thing you can do is just go around uh, confirming your own biases. So as you can see, you have to do the work, you have to do some reflection, you have to have a reflective model, you've got to go backwards, you've got to go forwards. So if you can find your own system that allows you to understand what's happening around you while understanding yourself, then I created a model with some friends when we were working together called Know Yourself, Know Your Team, and then Grow Your Team. So when you have grown your team, those people will be effective followers, but then they will have also gone through the process of building out their own mental models, understanding how to reflect, trying to make sense of things, and hopefully not going for the confirmation bias. I think you talked earlier on about unlearning. One of the great things about learning new things is that you often have to back test things that happened in your life to see if that was actually real. Because you often have to check in with yourself to say, that experience that happened to me again, why did that happen again? Is it my behavior or am I just unlucky or do I keep on walking into traps that I set myself up for? So you might have to unlearn some of your biases, uh, check some of your behaviors. You might have to think the thing I learned when I was 20, I don't need when I'm 40. Have I developed enough? So the concept of unlearning is probably more important than learning when you're a leader because you have to really check yourself and make sure that what you thought was true may not be true today. Constant evolving process, plenty of iterations. Um, I mean, like if we're focusing back then on the present day, David, we're just over three weeks now until the start of an MLS season. An MLS season like none other in my head because it's a World Cup year and you yourself adapted to new context with the impact of travel times on player availability, um, roster regulations, disparity between wages and the squad and whatnot. I mean, how will you approach, I suppose, gain and buy? And you speak about being a leader, but you speak about followers also. How will you approach that process of getting buy in in such a brief period of time? Yeah, so it's really strategic. You have to presume that we've been so good in the last couple of years that what we're doing is really good already. You have to presume that the people who are inside the business are really good at what they're doing anyway. So you have to you know, trust that they, uh, Orlando have been in the playoffs for the last two years. They've promoted a load of people internally. They're building out um, a new roster and they've added so many um, new leaders who have got really, really defined skill sets and responsibilities that you have to presume that everybody knows what they're doing. So what I'm going to do is I'm gonna build trust with all of these people and understand all of their competencies and then layer in you know, support so everybody can do their job a little bit better and making sure that we've got all the right people sitting on the right seats and we're all going in the right direction. That's very, very simple to do as a leader. The worst thing you can do is you can rock up and you can go straight into change. Because when you start changing things, you know, people start getting worried about, well, where does this change go? And what you definitely don't want is you don't want people fearing and having that you know, lack of psychological safety about some European guy rocking up and we're gonna change everything. So I've been very clear in the first few days that there won't be any changes. And that all we're gonna do is we're going to evolve and we're gonna make sure that we have people sitting in the right seats. And if you're not happy in your seat, let's move you into a seat that you wanna sit in and if you're not happy with your tasks, make sure that you've got the tasks that you love. 
And if you feel like you need uh, some help in some of the things you do, well, we're going to sharpen the saw. And sharpen the saw is a Stephen Covey idea of it. All right, if you know what your competence is, well, we're going to make sure that we can polish that up and we're going to practice around your competency so we can sharpen your saw and you know why you're in the performance team and you know why you're part of it. So this is an unforgiving league because of travel and it's an unforgiving league because of the length of it. And what we're going to do is we're going to lean in on all the experts who've got huge experience and how to be part of this league. And that's really, really good for me because I've got that self-awareness that I know I've got some great people in the team and we've got some huge and um, hugely experienced people in the organization. So simply leaning in on them for context and support uh, is like my number one uh, uh, like goal for the uh, first phase of being here. Like, so for the first 90 days, you know, people have a hundred day plan. I've got a 90 day observe and make sure that I can understand all the context of the MLS. There's a clear distinguishment there though, David, between what to think and how to think. You know, the conventional approach would be for that new leader to go in default setting, change, get where's that placebo effect, and be able to evaluate and measure and quantify success based upon that. But if you're truly into playing that long-term game such as yourself, then I think you can reach that stage where you cultivate a followership. Yeah, look, change and resistance almost go together. Whenever anybody talks about change, the first thing we always talk about, they hit a wall of resistance. And that might be a magic number of like, you get 50% of your change management project done, and then you have to go back and you have to try and nudge another 25%. But when you change anything straight away, people are like, wow, I think I'm going to be resistant here. Or they take the passive role, which is I'm going to withdraw from that. So nobody can be successful with a passively withdrawn team or an actively resistant team. Now, you're really, really in trouble. So any leader that walks into any business and decides that I'm going to change, well, they have to be given a mandate by someone that they're going to go in and change things. And as we know, football coaches, they can come in very clearly, very quickly and change everything because it's an unforgiving results related business. And if you don't change things, you could be out of a job before you know it. Look at West Brom. That's a crazy story. I just saw that their head coach was, was fired um, and they've just uh, bought a player from um, Orlando for $10 million and and the head coach is gone. So, you know, I can see that change can happen there because it has to, but in this type of role, definitely change is um, extremely slow and stakeholder driven and inclusive because if we're going to change something, it's only because we're going to polish it. And if we're going to change something, it's only because we've done a review on it and we realize that, you know, this is not, uh, feeding into our performance strategy or this is not optimal we're not world class we're not best in class so we have a matrix already which shows is this high performance and is this optimal to our strategy and if it is in that matrix the top right hand corner then we're going to really 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 um, uh, focus in on that and if it's low um, performance and it's not optimal we're going to cut that out of our strategy so everybody has seen this four box model already inside the staff. And I said, just stick a dot. If you think it's low optimal, like it's, a, it's not working so well and it's low performance strategy, stick it in there and we're going to phase it out. So they get ownership of anything that we're going to change and they get ownership of anything that we're going to focus in on. It's amazing. As always, David, it's an absolute pleasure speaking with yourself. It's like a mental chess match. <laughs> but I, I suppose... <laughs> Someone like yourself, I mean, you've been so kind 
to me over the past year or so and i know you're the same with countless others within the industry in terms of offering advice and guidance as to what to do next and as jim collins says in good to great if you're good you'll get it if you if you're great you'll keep it what would be your advice to others out there listening today who not only want to get in the into the industry but remain in it and build that sustainable foundation yeah okay so um if you don't have someone that you can trust, that you can talk to about what is actually experiencing, what you're experiencing inside performance, high performance sports, if you don't have someone you can be honest with and check in with, then you know, you're missing a trick. You need to find someone that cares about you and someone that can tell you the truth. You know, like, listen, you know, what you're telling me here doesn't sound right or it doesn't sound best for you or this isn't a decision I would take but also allows you to check your reality because sometimes other people weren't there to experience what you've experienced. So if you want to have um, a sustainable long-term um, career inside high-performance sport, then you really need to make sure that you have a network of mentors or ambassadors or safe people that you can go to to talk about the things that you're experiencing and to be vulnerable and to be open and to ask them like, is this okay? Is this normal? Am I thinking straight? Is this the best for me? What do you think you're experiencing? Because if you don't lean in on those people, then you'll try and do everything yourself. And it's very, very difficult uh, to do everything yourself. And also, if you don't have someone to check your reality, then the things you're experiencing might not actually be happening. They could be happening inside your head. So if you're stuck inside your head and the pressure and the stress of uh, working in this, uh, this business can get to you, well, then you can really detach yourself from reality and you're dissociated from probably the feelings inside your body, which might be telling you, hey, you're burning out. Hey, you're, you know, you're not eating or you're eating too much. Uh, you're consuming bad food or, uh, you're, you know, you're, you've got some bad habits that are affecting your physical and your mental health. So I would say, yeah, that's um, find a stable of people you can talk to outside of, you know, your role uh, who you uh, can open up to who you trust, who can tell you the truth about how you do. So they will spot your blind spots. So that's a, a probably takeaway bit of advice that nobody ever talks about. It's a continuous scam. It's amazing. Absolutely. David, well, the game has done you well, judging by where you're sitting there today. Um, for anyone who's feeling the slightest bit inspired from this chat between ourselves, where's best to catch you online? Uh, let's see. So uh, LinkedIn, um, they can always uh, jump into the DMs. That's no problem. If anybody's really interested in leadership, every Thursday um, at, uh, let's see, 8 o'clock in England, 9 o'clock in Europe, um, 3 o'clock in New York, uh, every Thursday, there's a thing called a leadership bunker where like 10 to 15 people, they talk openly around uh, leadership. And that's a free like drop-in thing where, you know, we built a little community. Um, so that's every Thursday. Uh, we were consistent on that for like, I think, 31 weeks in a year last year. And we start again next week. Um, so jump on on Thursday. And um, there's no point spamming me on Twitter because uh, you won't you won't get much activity there. And I think my MySpace, Bebo and Facebook are all deleted now. Only enough, I checked through your uh, Twitter followers the other day. All I see is Felix McGath and Dairy Products. But that's a story for another day. <laughs> David, absolute pleasure having you on. Great stuff. Thanks, Connor. It's my pleasure. Cheers, mate.